So thankful and blessed we each can feel this evening that we've been permitted this privilege, this honor, this tremendous opportunity to assemble and to gather in the way that we have for the express purpose of lifting our consideration in worship to the Heavenly Father who so rightly deserves that. In our prayer this evening already, in the songs in which we've sung, in the character of our thoughts already expressed so well, our mind has been brought to appreciate perhaps the wording of Psalm 26 verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. The Pippin congregation has gathered this afternoon for this period of worship, and we're certainly thankful for our membership and for our visitors who also have come our way. It's truly our expectation that our service will be uplifting and encouraging to each and every individual that has gathered on this occasion. As you know, at least on Sunday evening, for many of us who are here tonight, we have been continuing in a series of lessons dealing with the book of 1 Corinthians as well as the book of Galatians. The Bible Bowl students are continuing in their study of those books, and we have chosen to consider the same on these Sunday evening lessons. We have already advanced to the fifth installment in that series of lessons on the 1 Corinthian letter. I would invite you tonight to turn with me to the eighth and ninth chapters of that book, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Perhaps as just a bit of introduction to that, we have already studied so many matters that touched so rightly that congregation in Corinth, but by the same token touches, of course, by parallel consideration, the very matters that are so important to the church today. The church in Corinth was suffering beneath divisions. Contentions existed between the brethren, and Paul addressed that in direct order in chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5, he touched the subject of sin existed publicly and known in that same congregation, urging them not to be prideful over the existence of the sin, but to be mournful over the fact that he was a brother that was lost, and how that they is such earnestness needed to deliver him to Satan until he, of course, would recognize the urgency of the hour and come and make things right. In chapter 6, brethren were going to courts of law one against another and doing so in an inappropriate fashion. As that chapter closed, Paul reminded them just as he does us, "...you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your mind which are Christ's." In chapter 7, they were having questions about marriage and divorce in the church and what that would mean for them of that day. And you and I noted even last week, the powerful, at least some of the powerful lessons to be extracted from that noble seventh chapter of the first Corinthian letter. To say all of that is to say that tonight we have more issues of the Corinthian church. I suppose by now we've begun to wonder how stable and how strong was the church in Corinth, for after all their problems seem to be many. Their concerns seem to be abundant. As they addressed a letter to Paul, we'll see tonight that they had another question. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, it'll be the occupancy of chapter 8 of our study, one of the shorter chapters in 1 Corinthians. Tonight, as we come to the subject before us, it's entitled, at least for the first part of this chapter, Food Offered to Idols. As you'll see on that slide, some of the matters before us immediately took the following consideration. You'll notice in verse number 4, "...as concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols." It would appear that the congregation there in Corinth also was beset with problems as to what should be done relative to food that had been offered to an idol. 
Could that food subsequently be ingested by a Christian and do so with clear conscience? Could such food as that be partaken in the audience of others? They had good questions about that. As you and I notice, chapter number 8 develops that point and does so in the following way. First of all, I might ask you to note with me, even at the outset, how diplomatic Paul's response to this question was. The inspired apostle, I'm sure, could in fact, in a very direct and in a very overpowering fashion, have presented the thoroughness and absoluteness of an answer. But yet he developed it very diplomatically, but also using a full appreciation of both New and Old Testament thoughts and ideas. Perhaps we might begin like this. First of all, you'll notice in those first four, four verses of that chapter, specifically verse number four, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. There was an element in knowledge of which Paul was aware, and certainly he encouraged those in Corinth to be aware of the same, namely that an idol is nothing. We understand that there is but one God. That was a matter troubling, of course, that ancient Roman Empire with its host of gods and goddesses. Even today, we still often see in textbooks that students are asked to memorize the Roman gods to appreciate their names and see the way in which they were revered. But in the midst of all of that pagan idolatry, Paul said, we know that an idol is nothing. It's not that it is merely nothing in the mind of those who would not appreciate such. He literally said it's nothing. Idols do not even exist in the sense of their false gods which they supposedly honor. The nature of that fact that it's nothing then calls us to imagine a matter about food. Think with me, if you would, about developments that may have occurred in that ancient era. You can imagine as these various Roman gods, as they were given sacrifices, individuals might well come, and in the course of their making sacrifices to those gods, they would make an offering of food. As that food was offered, that food wasn't destroyed in many cases, but rather it merely reappeared in the public Roman marketplaces, which people normally would go to purchase food for themselves and their family, and so what may well have happened is a certain food that was well known to have been offered to an idol would later be purchased by an individual and served to his or her family. And at that point, then the question might be asked, knowing that that food was offered to an idol, may I as a Christian partake of it with clear conscience and no disfavor to be appreciated in the sight of God? You can imagine then why they apparently asked Paul about this question. What should a Christian do? We've seen the first element of appreciation. An idol is nothing. It is not, in fact, an appreciation of any real God. Those supposed gods don't even exist. An idol, thus, is nothing. So often we've seen those thoughts that I ask you to ponder the 135th Psalm with me for just a moment. Beginning in the 15th verse of that chapter, the inspired writer of old simply said... Speaking of these idols, they have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they are unable to hear. And in fact, they are unable to bring to pass any urgency or any motive that one may ascribe to them. An idol, you see, is nothing. It is a figment of the human imagination at best. 
It is in that regard that Paul encourages these Corinthians to keep that thought in mind. That nothingness of an idol leads us then to observe this also. In verse number 8 of this same chapter, Paul, by inspiration, makes this comment. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. With those two thoughts in mind, on the one hand, an idol is nothing. On the other hand, meat, by its very nature and by its per, per se existence, does not commend us to God. Thus, does it not well seem maybe that the answer was clear? Paul should have just said, it's okay to eat these matters that were previously offered to idols. But he didn't say that, at least not that way. I wonder then, what's the bulk of this chapter? Why did Paul express the response in the way that he did? Maybe there's another consideration. And that consideration is what will occupy us for several moments yet to come in the lesson this evening. What was the other consideration that prompted Paul to answer this question somewhat differently than what one may have expected based only on the verses we've considered so far? Maybe verse number 1 begins it like this. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And immediately Paul makes observation that there is a sense in which knowledge left to its own unguided character, unprompted, unmotivated by love, that knowledge can lift one up in arrogance, pride, in a, and in a puffed up way and can actually lead to some harm. It can lead to activities which, due not to the love that should be prompted thereby, perhaps lead others to experience problems. Problems perhaps explained by this. Paul quickly now makes mention of a weak brother a brother whose conscience might be defiled by his observing one partaking of meat like this. In fact, let's notice exactly the way that Paul reads it. In verse number 7, How be it there is not in every man that knowledge? For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And then verse number 10, for if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat these things which are offered unto idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? The title that I chose for the lesson this evening was Saving People. And one of the overarching characteristics of this eighth chapter has been an overwhelming love for a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Even though knowledge may well be that I know that an idol is nothing, at least in his or her immature state, a state in which he or she has not yet matured to the point which they soon no doubt will, then it would be a rather unloving thing for me to act in a way purposefully in their sight to lead them, of course, to a question, to doubt, whose faith may well be harmed in an almost irreparable fashion, and in so doing, to perhaps lead them to perish. The very words that Paul uses in verse 11. Would that not be a very unloving thing to do? Would that not be a very inconsiderate and unfaithful thing to do? Again, the question, And through thy knowledge, verse number 11, Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Christ died for him or her just as he did for me. 
And surely by my instruction, my continued prayer for him or her, by my efforts on their behalf, they may soon reach an element of knowledge. But at least for now, their weak conscience might be defiled if I partake of this in this way. And in response to that, Paul was quick to say in verse 13, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. One of the things that Paul then was quick to mention was that it was a great love, a great consideration, a powerful concern for the spiritual well-being of others. Paul in selfishness could have said, I know that the idol is nothing and thus food offered to it too is still clean to eat and if I choose to do so, that is fine. But he said, if it will cause my brother to stumble, if it causes my brother to be offended, if his weak conscience being defiled, then leads him to a greater sense of error, I will in fact eat no meat while the world standeth. Does it that prompt you and me to perhaps give additional consideration to the very issue before us? As you can see at the bottom of that slide, there's one verse, verse 12, that I did not yet read. And in this verse, a very strong element of language is employed. But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Here Paul has lifted this whole matter above just a matter of personal choice and volition. He uses the word sin twice in that verse. For me to behave in such an inconsiderate, unconcerned fashion toward another, he says here, I have sinned against my brother. And in so doing, he says, I've sinned against Christ. Who among us would like to approach the judgment seat of Christ on that marvelous and powerful day with a sin against the brethren upon our hands and a sin against Christ in the same place? It's a frightful matter, isn't it? We see even in this case, it would appear that in Corinth there was also a strong element of selfishness. We will encounter that again, by the way, later in chapter number 11. But for now we see brethren who perhaps had gathered for the assembly or they were gathering in some cases in other locations. And as they did so, there were some who were purposefully, willfully partaking of that which had been offered to idols, knowing that it was wounding the conscience of those. And Paul said, you are sinning against Christ, acting in such a fashion as this. That congregation needed a strong element of brotherly kindness, and love that would prompt them to understand it was Christ that had died for them, and it was also that same Christ that had died for that weak brother. Doesn't that help us see, too, that there are stages of existence in faith? There are those that are strong and mature. It is folks like that that are mentioned in Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. And so there are those that are spiritual. Perhaps by years of study, intense interest in matters divine and godly, they have arrived at a stature that they can be a benefit to so many others. But there are those that maybe are new converts. There are those who due to their background, they are not as mature as others. Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 8 about those whose faith was weak. And in Romans 14, Paul quickly made note there, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. 
the church in Rome, you see, also battled issues much like the one that we're facing this evening. Perhaps our continued thoughts then, in light of all of that, leads us to some additional comments about these, these foods offered unto idols. These idols of which we've spoken. We well understand that these are matters which per se are not things you and I directly address today. You and I don't have to worry about going to the marketplace and buying foods knowing that it might have been offered to an idol. Our age and our day and our civilization have advanced considerably since then. But isn't it true that there still are parallel considerations that you and I might face today? In those instances, there still are these matters that require a love for the souls of others. Even though it might be a matter of personal liberty in which there would not be innately anything in, in error about it. If it causes someone else weak to stumble, to be offended, perhaps their faith to be crushed, then it would seemingly require in the element of love at least until they can grow and to mature and we can perhaps share and teach them that we would have more concern for them than that. Jesus taught Himself in Mark 8 verses 36 and 37, as he spoke about the worth of the soul. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He had just preceded that by saying, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Perhaps one final thought before we leave the 8th chapter might well be this one. As we give thought to the kinds of issues that this might discuss, it certainly would be fair to say, as you see about the middle of that slide, that it would appear that this touches matters that by themselves are not condemned. That is, they are optional. They are expedient. This in no way could be used to justify that which other passages condemn. Just because some weak brother doesn't understand the intricacies in God's teaching on a point doesn't give me the liberty of using it in a way that's offensive to God. And by the way, doesn't that also lead us to think this? This could not be used as a defense for every kind of activity imaginable. It is true in the human family that there are those that are contentious people. There are those who are somewhat cranky in the way that they go about things. And if we thus, by using this passage, were to say, I mustn't do anything that in any way offends anybody, then it's safe to say we won't ever be doing anything. Because there's always somebody who, due to immaturity or otherwise, will fail to see the good. Notice, this couldn't be used as a defense for that. After all, didn't Jesus recognize even in His day? There were those who didn't want Him to heal on the Sabbath, but did that stop Him? Did He refuse to heal those that were sick just because it was a Sabbath or just because there were those that didn't want Him to do it? Many occasions Jesus healed, He preached, He taught, He labored, He worked in ways that were, of course, not in any disfavor with the Old Testament. And so you and I can teach and admonish and help others to understand, realizing this can't be used as a defense for not doing anything. Amazingly enough, as we come to the bottom of that slide, it does help us see the great element of work that's been left to us in the church work of evangelism, the work of edification. And as you can see, so often those things redound unto passages like these. 
chapter 9, verse 16 of this same book. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul understood the urgency of saving people. In this case, he said, if it causes others to offend, if it causes their weak conscience to be defiled, I will tread carefully, and I will eat no meat if that's what it requires. Paul's motivation was the saving of the souls of people. Is that our motivation? Is that our incentive today? If so, we should appreciate more thoroughly the text of chapter 9. As we come to chapter 9, we find that Paul elaborates on that thought and does so in a way that helps us appreciate a powerful reality that God has invested within His church and within the nature of the way the work of the church is done. The first few verses of this chapter inform us that there were those in Corinth that were calling into question the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of Paul. They were calling into question his authority. In fact, verse number 4, rather verse number 3 says, Mine answer, and in the original language that word is defense, my defense to them that do examine me is this. It's rather easy to appreciate what likely was taking place. Here was the church in Corinth. Paul had already been there again on the missionary journeys in days gone by, and as he had now left, he learned problems and difficulties had begun to arise. No doubt some of those were prompted by individuals who had an element of intellectual character, and they had a strength of character, so much so that it likely was difficult to oppose them. No doubt one of the approaches that some of these individuals were taking was they were calling into question the authority of Paul. This fellow that came through here preaching this sometime in the past, was he really an apostle? How do you know he was? What were his credentials? What was his authenticity? You can imagine that that is to this day one of the quickest ways to do away with the message of someone in debate. If one person doesn't like the message of another, and usually in debate he doesn't, one tactic he'll use is to do away or at least not address the message, but to try to discredit the messenger. That is, call into question the characteristics, the lifestyle, the knowledge, the education, the learning of the one speaking, and if you can discredit him, then you can perhaps indirectly at least discredit his message. Maybe that's what they were doing to Paul. This gentleman that came through here claiming to be an apostle, how do you know that he was? What things can you point to as evidence of his apostleship? Paul said, here's my answer. He, in fact, not only will have to resort to this in this book, but the second Corinthian letter, later written to the same congregation, he often resorts to a defense of his own apostleship, but he does so in a magnificent way. One of the ways he does that in, that second, in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians is... I knew a man that had been taken to the third heaven. Paul even makes realization of the fact that here, referring to himself, he could speak about the overwhelming reality that was his to be privileged to witness and hear things that he was no longer able to share. Paul had been carried off into a place that human beings had not been. One of the things Paul mentions along that line brings us back to this very chapter this evening. Paul's apostleship. In verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, he says, Have we not power to eat and to drink? He uses an analogy as he defends this consideration of himself and others who preached the gospel in that first century era. 
Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? It would appear that one of the questions they raised about Paul was the financial means being used to support him. Today, is it still possible and does it still occur that congregations call into question those who come and claim to be missionaries? Is that man, is that group of individuals using this money wisely? Are they in fact using this money in the way they claim? It is serious business, isn't it, to make sure we use the money of the Lord in a way that brings about the good He has authorized. But here they were calling into question some of the things relative to the way those monies were being utilized. For that reason, in verses 7 and 8, Paul makes a defense. And he does so using three well-understood means. First of all, that farmer that has a flock, doesn't he partake of the fruit of that flock? That is to say, the milk that comes from the sheep? And furthermore, what about those soldiers that go off to war? Do, does not the whole country benefit from them? Those soldiers are paid out of the public treasury, but yet all of us benefit from the freedom and liberty they allow us as a nation to enjoy. Isn't that interesting? The same premise, Paul says, applies to those who minister in the gospel. Is it right to pay a preacher? Is that something that meets the authority of Scripture? Is it acceptable to take money from the treasury of the church and to pay a man to preach the gospel either locally or in missionary efforts other, in, in other places? This chapter says, yes, such a thing is right. In verse number 9, he even quotes from the Old Testament to make his argument. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? That quotation found from Deuteronomy 25, the first six verses of that chapter, reminds us that on that occasion, the inspired writer of old made reference to the fact that as you hitch up a team of oxen and you use them to tread out the corn, that was done such that as they would walk on that hardened surface, it would of course separate the good parts from that which was not. He says, you must not muzzle the mouth of the ox. He has a right to partake of that which by his labor and effort he's producing. And so it is with regard to those who proclaim the gospel in that regard. Notice again verse number 7. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Paul's conclusion then in verse number 11 was this. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Paul says, I, he uses himself and others, if we have sown spiritually, sharing the gospel, setting forth those matters of heavenly intent, he says, ought we not then have a right to enjoy the benefit that you offer to us physically? What kind of answer could be given to that kind of question? we find then inherent in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians the scriptural opportunity. Now a man may choose to not take of it, but he, if he's a preacher, has a right to be supported by those with whom he labors and among whom he labors. Isn't it interesting in light of that here in verse number 12? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? 
Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Maybe that brings us to then appreciate, as you can see on that slide, Paul and others then had a right to be supported by congregations as they proclaimed and preached the gospel. That does lead us to notice carefully, though, the language of verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And therein lies the concern for elderships. We must be sure not, of course, to send monies off supporting these when it's not the gospel that's their primary concern. It's not the matters of truth that is ultimately which they utilize so frequently. The gospel is just a sideshow for something more devious, something that's of ulterior character. Here... They which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And seemingly in the day in which we live, even as it was in the ancient era, if that statement be true, then some men ought virtually to starve to death, given how little gospel they preach. But yet, isn't it sad that such a reality had to be mentioned? As we get to verses 15 and 16, that brings us again to the urgency of Paul's moment. Verse 16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For of necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel. Paul had a love for the souls of individuals. In the book of Acts, as we read about the missionary journeys, he would arrive at these places, often going to the synagogue and then preaching the truth of Christ, longing and looking for precious souls that would hear and respond, hearts that were fertile, Today, is our wish any less? Is our hope any less? Trail has led us in some songs tonight, all of which have touched the matter of rescue the perishing. The nature of that first song, 2A, in which we understood the urgency of the moment of helping others see the blessed way of salvation. Paul had that kind of heart, didn't he? Wishing to preach it, he said, Woe is to me if I preach not the gospel. Is it any wonder then that prompted him to make comments like these? Beginning in verse number 20. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. What a beautiful sentiment. A man so desirous of helping others see the truth of God that he was willing to in condescending character come to a station to which they might be willing to listen. That's another one of those passages surely one mustn't take too far. To reach a drunkard, you and I would never become a drunkard. To try to teach an adulterer, we'd never become an adulterer. But Paul's point is this. I look for those circumstances and stations in life, and I don't tower over them as if I'm better than they are. I try to reach them with an honest and sincere spirit. To those that are in law, that is, those that were of the old law of Moses variety, Paul could speak to them with all the power and fortitude of the law of Moses, convincing them that that law was nailed to the cross. To those that were without law, that is the Gentile, Paul could reason with them about the great promises of the Old Testament that would one day be poured forth to them as well. In those same verses, he mentions also to those that are weak. 
Paul knew well about those who were weak. He had visited so many cities and he said, I can even converse with them in a way to help them appreciate Jesus loves them as well. Finally, in verse 22, I am made all things to all men. Paul knew he wouldn't save everybody, for he knew we each are still left as creatures of choice, aren't we? We can't save everyone because everyone won't believe, but perhaps God will lead us to some. And their hearts will be open to that which is the message of truth, that I might in fact save some. Some of the thoughts on this slide develop that thought a little bit more thoroughly. As you and I think again about this matter of financial issues, the opportunity and the scriptural right to support a preacher in that regard and in that way, you'll notice that that leads us to see the way that Paul closes this chapter. It is a touching sentiment. Know ye not, verse 24, that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Even the great apostle, the peerless Paul, recognized even here in verses 24 to 27, that as he preached and as he taught, he even made a careful watch and a vigilant consideration of his own body, lest he should do anything that he would apostatize, walk away from the faith, and he himself, of course, would be lost. He uses the analogy of a race, be it a marathon runner or a sprinter, there are several things that are obvious. First of all, one must enter the race if you're ever going to finish. It doesn't matter how skilled a runner you are. If you never sign up and enter the race, it's for sure you'll never receive the prize. Tonight, are you running the Christian race? Have you started running it? The starting blocks are filled with those, of course, who recognize the needfulness of the plan of salvation. The New Testament commands that we believe Jesus to be the Son of God, we repent of our sins, we confess His name as the Son of God, and we be baptized. Have you attended to that? If you haven't, then you haven't yet started the Christian race. You yet are on the sideline. Don't let that state of affairs continue. But might we say, if you have begun the race, notice what else Paul said. He uses an interesting word, doesn't he, in verse 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. That word temperate means self-controlled. Do you walk wisely day by day? Paul did admonish, didn't he, the Ephesians? See that you walk circumspectly. Not as unwise, but knowing the time, redeeming the time, he would say in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. In Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3, a similar language in which we all are admonished to redeem the time. And that word means to recognize that each moment that passes us by is a moment we can never reclaim. We pass through this life but one time. It is a one-way journey. Are we using the time we have wisely, judiciously, appropriately? Maybe in light of all of that, it helps us see that if Paul understood that he himself could be a castaway, then I know Randy Bybee can. 
I know that things could develop, and if I'm not wise, if I'm not sober, if I'm not vigilant, problems can develop, issues may arise, and of course difficulties for my soul could result. And the same is true of you. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. As we close that slide, and we find the final admonishment that we've seen in these chapters, it leads us to conclude in this way. What a tragedy it is for those then who once were saved, so conduct themselves that they become a castaway. They once were strong. They once were faithful. They once were such that their name was in the book of life, but they no longer are. They're not faithful to the calling of the Lord. They aren't faithful to the church. They aren't faithful to the various and sundry demands on a daily basis. And as such, as such, they have become the castaway of which Paul spoke. No wonder at urgency we again could close the lesson, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And again, in the interest of saving people, we do appreciate their weak brethren, and we don't run roughshod over their lack of knowledge. But rather, we strive to assist them that they may grow in the nurture and admonition of those things spoken of in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Tonight, as we analyze all of that and think about saving people, wasn't Paul a tremendous example in his dealing with weak brethren, the way that he could become all things to all men, that he might by all means save some? What an example. May you and I strive to follow and imitate him even as he imitated Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, or rather chapter 11, verse 1. This evening, as we each analyze ourselves, what about you and me? Are we also living wisely, circumspectly like Paul? Or have you and I become a castaway? If it is the latter, why not come before us tonight? Why not come acknowledging sin, allowing us to pray on your behalf if you once were a faithful member? But if you've never become one, let us assist you in that initial obedience to the plan of salvation. Tonight, if we could be of help to anybody, prayers of strength or otherwise, why not let us do that and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing?